This podcast is brought to you by Alex Partners. New and accelerating disruptions from new technologies to geopolitical conflict to a warming planet are buffeting business daily. Are you ready? Read more in the fifth annual Alex Partners Disruption Index online today at disruption.alexpartners.com. Not that long ago, watches conveyed status, fashion, and analog excellence. And then technology blew it all up. Now, our wrists never stop buzzing. How we got there is a tale of innovation gone right and wrong. Welcome to the Readback from Barron's. This season, we're doubling down on the past, exploring why companies, ideas, and industries thrive, even as others fail to meet their promise. Those stories are often forgotten, but they hold valuable lessons for the future. I'm Alex Yule. On today's show, how Fitbit lost the wearables revolution. I'm going to start today's episode on January 5th, 2016, a day that changed the course of Fitbit's history. A wearables company that over the course of five years went from a market value of $10 billion to less than $2 billion. On that fateful day, I was sitting in the hotel ballroom at the Mandalay Bay at a low-key event at the Consumer Electronics Show, better known as CES. One of the biggest tech conventions in the world kicks off this weekend. If you don't know what CES is, it's basically nirvana for tech lovers. There is all kinds of stuff at CES. Gadgets everywhere, tech in every direction to look at and play with, and lots of people. In 2016, everyone wanted to hear about wearables. You may remember them. They were those bracelets that counted your steps, tracked your sleep, and sometimes your heart rate. Back then, wearables still felt primitive, which meant there was lots of room for growth. Something that excites both investors and consumers. And Fitbit, the biggest name in the space, as well as a newly public company, was going to be unveiling its latest product. So I got to the presentation early and grabbed a good seat, before Fitbit CEO and founder James Park took the stage. He had a big announcement. Be your best and look your best with Fitbit Blaze, a smart fitness watch that's nonstop. It was called the Blaze, and it was basically Fitbit's first smartwatch. It had a color screen, a heart rate monitor, interchangeable bands, and five days of battery life. All the things that were very cool in early 2016. It went far beyond Fitbit's earlier devices. And that's exactly what high-tech gadget companies are supposed to do. Make innovative products that break ground and convince consumers to upgrade. But that's actually not the story of the Blaze. Within an hour of the press conference, Fitbit's stock had tumbled 13%. Fitbit shares ended the day down even more, and they never recovered. I was at CES that year as well. I believe I sent my research associates to attend that event. Charlie Anderson, a senior research analyst at Collier Securities, was also at CES that year. He remembers the launch of the Blaze 2. I do remember her pinging me afterward, describing what a disaster it was. I'll get back to what exactly happened that day in a moment. But first, I want to talk about Fitbit's glory days. And those peaked in 2015, when the company went public. Fitness tracker Fitbit looks to outrun the competition. Shares priced at $20 ahead of its first day of trading, underscoring the surprisingly strong financial condition of a company pioneering a new era of consumer hardware. No wonder Wall Street was pumped. Fitbit was a direct play on wearables, and now investors finally had a chance to get in on the action. 
Here's Charlie again. If you go back to 2015, so that was the year that they went public. It was a spectacular year across the board, right? So they did 1.9 billion in sales. They had done just under 750 million the year before. Okay, so significant, you know, more than doubling of revenue. I think in the market, there weren't a lot of, you know, consumer electronics companies growing at that pace, delivering that level of profitability. And so, you know, they very much, I think, deserved a premium valuation at that time. And the promise went beyond consumers buying wristbands to count their steps. The really big idea was for Fitbit to become a part of our healthcare, maybe with insurance companies ordering millions of them. Just imagine a huge organization buying your products and then handing them out for free. That's a pretty good business model. But I had my doubts, and so did Charlie. We actually did start initially with a buy, and I want to say we downgraded within months because the stock went on such a run, and that's where we downgraded. Just a note before we move on. In finance, there are lots of bold calls, but we rarely follow up or look back at what was said. Barron's is almost a century old, so we have a lot of experience making those calls. And that's what we're going to focus on with this show, where we were right, where we were wrong, and what we can learn from it all. And how better to do it than actually reading back our old stories? Okay, so I was also going back and looking at some of our coverage, and I I wanted to read to you the quote that you gave me back in December of 2015 about Fitbit. And this is by the time you had a neutral rating. And you said, you could throw caution to the wind and fundamentally believe in the story and the management team, but it's a product-driven business. For me to get behind it, I'd like to see these new products and judge whether they'll find the new audience that they need. Yeah, so I think what I was articulating back then was it was a products-driven business. They would only come out with one or two products a year. And so as a result, they really needed those products to be hits. And so that really was the investment case. There was an amount of uncertainty. You know, they had had a good run of product introductions, the Fitbit Charge HR, the Fitbit Surge. But, you know, one didn't know what their next one was going to be. They were a very young company. They didn't have a long demonstrated track record. And, you know, as it turned out, the next set of products they released over the next two years were not hits. Not only were the products missing the mark, but the wearables market was getting more crowded, with one particularly scary competitor looming. We've been working incredibly hard for a long time on an entirely new product. That was Apple CEO Tim Cook introducing the Apple Watch in September 2014. The product seemed poised to join Apple's groundbreaking lineup. You know, the iPod, the iPhone, and the iPad. Not an easy set of comparisons if you're Fitbit. Which brings us back to where we started, CES 2016. The disaster, as Charlie recalled. So why was it a disaster? Well, I think you look at what they were being compared to, and it was the Apple Watch at that time, and it just did not live up to the quality of an Apple Watch-type experience. And people just looked at the device and said, this is not going to hold up well next to an Apple Watch. You know, subsequently, they would not refer to it as their first smartwatch. I remember (laughs) that. They tried to almost erase the history. Correct. And it's true in this regard. You know, it didn't really deliver true smartphone notifications, you know, what you would be used to in a smartwatch experience. And so I think it got miscast a little bit as an Apple Watch competitor. It may have been unfair to compare Fitbit's Blaze to the Apple Watch, but that's what everyone was doing. Just listen to this interview. 
the question that I think you're going to get a lot from mm -hmm. people is, "Wow, you're taking on Apple." Well, some might have claimed already that you know, you know, both Apple and us were competing. We've always made the distinction that we're doing something different. You know, Fitbit Blaze is definitely our take on a smartwatch, but it's still pretty different. Like I said in the press conference, we think of it as a smart fitness watch because its main focus is fitness first. That's James Park, the founder and CEO of Fitbit, trying to explain why his company wasn't really competing with Apple. And yet, with every Fitbit launch, it became harder to escape Apple's shadow. Fitbit had found success competing with the likes of Nike and Under Armour, but entering the smartwatch landscape was a whole different ballgame. Hey, Emily. Hey, thanks for having me on. Thanks for coming. Emily Barry, my colleague at MarketWatch, was writing about Fitbit for Barron's at the time. And she remembers the device's limitations as a big problem. One thing about the Fitbit watches was that if you had an Apple device, you couldn't send texts through the Fitbit because Apple kind of walls off its ecosystem. So it doesn't let third parties, you know, have access to the ability to send texts. And so on Fitbit watches, you could see the text, but you couldn't actually type out replies. Whether you blame Fitbit or Apple for the issue, consumers were frustrated. And Fitbit's identity crisis had only gotten worse. Was it a fitness company? Was it a smartwatch company? The in-between category just wasn't working. The company had launched the Blaze in 2016, then another watch called the Ionic in 2017. But along the way, the company kept trying to hit the reset button. So sure enough, when it launched a device called the Versa in 2018, Fitbit referred to the product as, quote, our first true mass appeal smartwatch. Everyone was confused, including me. Eventually, consumers said enough. In early 2019, Fitbit released a Versa follow-up called the Versa Lite, and no one seemed to care. It was one last flop. They realized that customers either wanted super feature-rich watches or else they wanted big discounts, and this Versa Lite watch didn't match either of those. So they sort of flubbed their spring launch. Within months of the Versa Lite debut, Fitbit slashed their outlook for the rest of the year the stock plunged 20%. But as the stock was plummeting, Fitbit began to attract some new attention from big companies that still saw value in the brand, including one tech giant. Fitbit up more than 15% today after announcing it is being acquired by Google for just over $2 billion. $2.1 billion. That's a lot of money. But it's actually a far cry from the $10 billion the company was once worth. Now, why was it even interested? Google makes most of its money off of search advertising, but it's gradually entered the gadget space over the years. It has Nest thermostats, Google Home smart speakers, and Pixel phones. The company has lagged in wearables, though, and Fitbit would give the company an immediate watch play. But for Google, nothing is ever simple, and Fitbit's appeal went well beyond watches. Fitbit obviously has access to health data that could be very valuable to Google, which had already had some pretty ambitious healthcare goals. Google has a health unit that's focused on using AI to diagnose cancer and predict patient outcomes, prevent blindness, a whole bunch of other things. So the idea is that Fitbit has all this data, and that could be very useful to Google. Not surprisingly, some folks aren't all that enthusiastic about Google having access to even more data. After all, the company already knows most of what we look at on the internet. And with Fitbit in the fold, Google would conceivably know how fast our hearts are beating as we look at an ad, 
or as we enter a store. That's drawing attention from lawmakers and regulators across the globe. Antitrust Subcommittee Chair David Ciclean putting out a statement saying in part that the acquisition deserves an immediate and thorough investigation, adding, quote, Google's proposed acquisition of Fitbit would also give the company deep insights into Americans' most sensitive information, such as their health and location data, threatening to further entrench its market power online. So the Google Fitbit deal has faced some regulatory pushback, particularly in Europe, where the European Commission has launched an in-depth investigation looking at some anti-competitive concerns potentially stemming from the merger. Fitbit has said it remains committed to user privacy and security, and Google has promised not to use or sell the data for advertising. But in the U.S., the Department of Justice is still looking at the deal. Ultimately, big tech companies are getting a lot more scrutiny these days. You might remember the CEOs of Amazon, Alphabet, Apple, Facebook were hauled in front of Congress this summer and grilled about how huge their businesses had become. So Google buying Fitbit right now isn't a great look. If the Department of Justice or Federal Trade Commission decides to block the deal, big tech companies could be facing even more problems than we currently know. So if you want to know how big tech's regulatory issues are playing out, keep an eye on what happens with Google and Fitbit. Google's deal is potentially the last chapter for what was once such a promising stock. I got to thinking about the lessons that can be salvaged from Fitbit's wreckage. I put the question to Charlie Anderson, the analyst from Collier Securities we heard from earlier. Was Fitbit doomed the moment the Apple Watch was announced? No, because I'm going to give you a counterpoint to that. Okay. (laughs) Which is Garmin. Yes, that's the Garmin that was once famous for the GPS in your car. But the company makes watches too, quite successfully in fact. Instead of trying to be the everyman's watch, Garmin went for narrow slices of the market. The company introduces as many as 100 products each year. Fitbit was wholly reliant on coming out with one or two watches a year and they had to be hits. (laughs) Garmin has not had that same dynamic. They have just continued to expand their user base with, I mean, I'll give you an example. They have a watch today that is just for divers. They have a watch just as for firefighters. They have a watch for pilots. And that's the reason, Charlie says, why Garmin has not just survived, but thrived. In 2015, the company had about $1.1 billion in sales. By last year, those sales had nearly doubled, as had profits. Over the same period, Fitbit sales fell by half a billion dollars. Another reason for Garmin's success is that they are vertically integrated. That's a fancy way of saying they control product development from start to finish. They design, build, and spin out their own products. Fast. You know, Fitbit was reliant on third-party manufacturers. There's a long design process, and just a lot was riding on each launch. It's been almost five years since Fitbit's terrible day at CES. And I'm still left wondering where the company goes from here. Can Fitbit finally reach its potential under Google? Will the merger even be allowed by regulators? And the biggest question of all remains the same. Can Fitbit finally live up to its potential in the world of healthcare? Fitbit today is probably still the de facto standard for medical research. An Apple Watch is expensive, and it's only worn by people who have an iPhone. And so Fitbit is an inexpensive cross-platform device. So it's used in university research consistently to this day. If Fitbit ever becomes a mainstream diagnostic tool paid for by insurance companies, the opportunities remain huge. In August, while announcing its latest smartwatch called The Sense, 
Fitbit actually talked about the big potential for wearables and health. Here's Fitbit co-founder Eric Freeman during the company's virtual launch event. I'm excited to talk to you about the future of wearables and the potential they have to help in the fight against COVID-19, to detect illness, and to alert you about serious chronic conditions. In January this year, Scripps published the results of a study that showed how data from Fitbit devices significantly improved influenza-like illness outbreak predictions. This type of information can improve- Fitbit is clearly still thinking about the future. And if its Google deal goes through, the company could finally have the resources to compete with Apple. If you can take this Fitbit asset and turn it into a Android watch that many Android users would want to purchase, it could be a very large business potentially. So I think how, that's what it's about. How amazing would that be, by the way, if after all this, five years later, Fitbit comes out with the ultimate Apple Watch competitor, but just under, under the auspices of Google. Correct. But Google can't do much for all those Fitbits that have been stuffed into drawers over the last decade. The bottom line is gadgets are a fickle business. We love something one year, and then we move on. Think of the GoPro, 3D printers, Tamagotchis, and the BlackBerry. I've learned that great gadgets rarely make great stocks. And that's something investors often forget. Do you know anyone today who wears a Fitbit? So we got my grandma the most basic Fitbit tracker. That's Emily Berry, who you heard earlier. She just wanted to wear it as a smart pedometer. She was using it for a while, and I reached out to her ahead of talking to you to ask if she still used it, still liked it, and that kind of reminded her she should go charge it because she hadn't used it in a while. And I think that's a problem they had to contend with throughout the history of the company. They made good gifts and stuff, but getting people to actually stick with it and then upgrade to new Fitbits was a challenge. And even for your grandmother? Even for my grandma, who walks a ton and likes counting her steps and was in this competition with people at work, she eventually kind of gave up on it. This was the second episode of our new season of The Readback. If you're a new listener, welcome. If you've been listening for a while, we're glad to have you back. Either way, we'd love to know what you think of the show. Please leave a review if you listen on Apple Podcasts. Reviews make it easier for others to find the show. You can also email us at thereadback at Thanks to Charlie Anderson and Emily Berry. For more coverage on Fitbit, Apple, and Garmin, you can check out barons.com. I'm Alex Ewell. The Readback is produced by Meta Latoft and Katie Ferguson. Melissa Haggerty is the executive producer. Next week on the show, the year the 3D printing bubble burst. The analysts and investors are all literally high-fiving each other, and I was standing on the sidelines like a pariah. I would love a 3D printer at home. The question is, what am I going to do with it? We'll be back next week.